Hello and welcome to the Low Tech Lecture Series. The following is an unedited lecture of a topic tangential to the Low Technology Institute. The ideas expressed are those of the speaker. We hope you find it informative and entertaining. As it is unedited, audio quality varies. Stay tuned after the lecture for information about the Low Technology Institute and its other offerings, or find us at lowtechinstitute.wordpress.com. Thanks and enjoy. This lecture series is a recording of the class Archaeology in the Prehistoric World from the spring semester of 2017, taught by Scott Johnson. Uh, we're moving on to Rome. Hooray! Uh, which is, uh, well, you know, I'm partial to the ancient Maya, but I think Rome is one of the most exciting ancient cultures. Uh, that's just my opinion. Um, we're going to talk with a heavy emphasis on Roman um, trade. Um, and we'll talk about the hubris that uh, Rome engendered in its own trade system and what caused its own downfall. And we can talk about whether or not Rome, uh, it's fair to compare ourselves to Rome. It's very common, right, because Rome is like, in the European tradition, the collapse of Rome was kind of like the first collapsed ancient civilization that everybody knew about because Rome um, kind of fades into the medieval period. And there's still Latin, and there's still a lot of uh, information about Rome, uh, written records that we can read, and all these things. So uh, it kind of fascinates uh, historians in Europe for quite a long time because it is so well known. Um, and then people ask, oh, are we the new Roman Empire? Are we going to collapse? Who knows? Um, and I'm saying, like, people have asked that since the Enlightenment. People have asked, are we the new Rome? Are we going to collapse? Right. And my answer would be, well, all societies have collapsed at some point. So the question isn't if we're going to collapse, but when. Um, there is as yet no society that has lasted a long time. But there are certainly some cultures like um, Egyptians and uh, Chinese who have gone through cycles of periodic ups and downs, but have largely maintained their social system, which might be the best we can hope for. Uh, I'm talking about us. But Rome collapsed and kind of fell apart uh, pretty substantially. Uh, so we're going to start talking about the region and environment of Rome. Then we'll uh, grade into the history of Rome. Uh, then we'll tackle agriculture, society, natural disasters. Finally, we'll spend a bit more time on trade. And then we'll talk about why and how the whole thing fell apart, why the wheels came off the Roman apple wagon. Has anyone been to Italy, Rome, around this area? OK, just out of curiosity. Um, so uh, we can split Rome up into different uh, concentric rings. The heartland, or I guess uh, Rome itself, is located in Italy, as most of us know, only 15 miles from the ocean uh, on uh, the Tiber River, which was its main uh, artery out to the ocean. Uh, the Roman heartland is pretty much the area south of the Alps and down through most of Italy proper. And uh, the Romans, we'll talk about the history of the Romans here in a little bit, but by about 200 uh, BCE, they had taken over most of what we call the Roman heartland, or what I call the Roman heartland. And then um, within 400 years, they grew to take over everything within this dotted line. So all the way from Iraq all the way up to uh, southern Scotland and um, Romania, all the way over to um, Morocco. And we see the effects or the um, 
the scar or, I don't know, the, the evidence of this empire in that uh, Romance languages uh, are not just romantic for Valentine's Day, but they are actually Roman-based languages. And that's why um, Spanish and Portuguese and French are all based on Latin. They're vernacular or local adaptations of the Latin language. Uh, same thing in um, in Switzerland, they have like Romange and a couple others uh, that are based on Latin. All the way over even um, Romanian. A lot of people think Romanian is a Slavic language related to Russian, but it is actually a Romance language related to Latin. And then of course we have our mongrel English tongue up here, which is really a combination of, uh, it's actually the, uh, the, the, it's the result of repeated invasions. Right, uh, there was a Gaelic and uh, Germanic base layer language. Um, the Romans invaded, and there was a bit of Latin added, and then the French invaded in 1200, and actually uh, French became the main language of the elites. And that's why uh, most of our, if you've noticed, most of our fancy words in English are based on French, and most of our I guess lower class words are based on, on um, Germanic bases or a, a German based uh, word. Uh, that's because there was a major class division. So if you wanted to sound smart and fancy, you'd use your Latin words uh, and, or your French words, right? Anyway, that's neither here nor there. Anyway, uh, but we see the evidence of this Roman spread over quite an area. Um, the, we have to remember this is a time when people didn't have motorized vehicles, although they did have uh, wheeled vehicles, it was still cheaper and easier to move things by boat. So the great uh, rivers and Mediterranean Sea itself really facilitated trade in a way that we haven't seen before, um, right? Uh, it's, it's no coincidence, or maybe it's a, a very lucky coincidence that Rome here is basically in the center of a big highway, right? Um, the other, before this time, Carthage was the Phoenician trade hub in the middle of the Mediterranean, and that's located almost due south of Rome. But from their location, they were able to trade with all the new colonies to the west and the all established uh, societies to the east. It was a pretty uh, optimal location. Lucky for them. Uh, pretty decent, nice precipitation. Um, Italy is a very temperate Mediterranean climate. It's warm for Europe, but it's not too warm. It's not northern Africa. Uh, it's very, it's a very nice place to be. Lots of good uh, rain. We have a couple rain shadows on uh, the southern side of the Alps that caught a lot of moisture from the Mediterranean and dumped it onto the ocean or onto the land. Um, even on the peninsula of Italy itself, there was this mountain range that runs down the length of it, um, dumped a lot of rain on the western side and left the eastern side a little dry, which is why most of the major um, settlements were on the, on the western side of Italy. Um, you can see some of that elevation here, and here are the Alps, and here's that spine that runs down Italy. Um, so like I said, this is, it encompassed really two uh, major climate regimes, the Mediterranean, which the Mediterranean climate has uh, cool, wet winters and hot, dry summers. Cool, wet winters, hot, dry summers. Um, and then there are southern colonies in Africa, obviously, um, were sometimes subject to the monsoon flooding 
uh, at least in much uh, more southern latitudes, but a lot of it was desert. And the Middle East, obviously, uh, pretty hot and dry as well. Uh, but then north of the main Roman heartland, we have the continental weather pattern, which is cold winters, warm summers, and pretty constant rain. So we're talking places like Austria and Germany and France, which was called Gaul at the time. Um, we also have change over time, right? Uh, we're going to talk about a span of about a, a little over a thousand years for Rome. And there was major climactic change. This is, remember, our oxygen-18 levels from uh, ice cores. Oh, I saw another piece in the news that uh, somehow a uh, freezer at the University of Alberta died, and uh, an eighth of their ice cores all melted, and they lost them. So that sucks. Uh, some of Canada's earlier glacier uh, measurements were, were lost, unfortunately, because the thing died. Uh, I've been to labs where they have like text, uh, cell phone linked uh, uh, chest freezers that if, if it dies or the power goes off, you send out a text to the person who's responsible for keeping it so they can come and fix it. Uh, I guess they didn't have that in Alberta. Uh, anyway, um, anyway, here uh, we can see these red, red is above and uh, blue is below, right? So uh, what the Romans really were able to take advantage of what is called the, the Roman Warm Period. Uh, it's also a similar period that happened um, that other cultures around the world took uh, advantage of. It just a general uh, natural global uh, a warming period um, with pretty useful steady rains, nice uh, warm time of, uh, of human history, which was followed by a cool period. Uh, happens to coincide with the Dark Ages. Again, this isn't correlation and causation, right? It's not directly because things got cold that we went into the Dark Ages, but it didn't help. Uh, we can see that in another way. This is air temperature at the summit. So this is from the Greenland ice sheet. And here's the Minoan. Uh, we're not going to talk about the Minoans, but they were one of the earlier major cultures in the Mediterranean basin. Here's the Roman warm period. Again, warms up. Then we have that cool, warms up again in the mid, uh, medieval warm period, and then it drops into the little ice age, which is, uh, so if you ever read like Little House on the Prairie, you remember like reading stories about how the snow would reach the second story windows, and, and you might wonder, well, why don't we get that today, right? Because they were living at the very end of the little ice age, and we've been warming since, and then we've had pretty rapid warming since the beginning of industrialization. Um, if we superimpose these, you can see that these different patterns um, actually agree pretty well. And then, uh, so if we want to put that onto the chronology that we're going to get for Rome, you can see that the Roman Warm Period uh, coincides with the beginning uh, and the good part of the empire. And the empire, after 200, we'll learn later, after 200 CE, really starts its imperial crisis decline into the Middle Ages. Um, so it happens to coincide. Again, correlation, causation, we can make arguments here one way or the other. Um, but um, I think any society that's in flux when they get a drastic change in weather is not going to do well. So these are the three main periods. Again, I'm not going to ask you for the specific dates. 
on the exam, but you'll want to remember that the monarchy is first, the republic is second, and the empire is third. Monarchy um, lasted less than 200 years and is probably to some extent mythical. We don't have written records from this time period. Uh, these are all taken from later Roman historian accounts of the founding and beginning of Rome. The Republic from 509 to 27 BCE. Um, we'll talk about how it grew and expanded um, over this time. And basically any date after 200 BCE can generally be taken as more or less historical. Uh, but before that, it's potentially mythical or at least uh, oral history. And then the empire from 27 BCE through 476, and people will quibble about the actual end, end date of the uh, Roman Empire, because, you know, if you were in, if you took European history in high school, you learned about the Holy Roman Empire uh, still being a thing in like, what, the 1700s? There's still a Holy Roman Emperor? emperor? but obviously there was no Rome, Roman Empire at that time, as, as we're going to be talking about. All right, let's start with the monarchy at the beginning. Uh, Rome was supposedly founded by two young orphans, uh, Romulus and Remus, who supposedly were um, raised by wolves. <laughs> like, I, I'm not saying that euphemistically, like, they weren't. They, they were supposedly actually raised by wolves. Again, this is probably mythical. However, the name uh, Romulus is where we get the name Rome because as they grew up, they um, were leaders of the tribes that lived in the Roman, uh, in the area of Rome. There were seven hills and there were tribes that lived on them. And uh, these guys united them and they disagreed about how the town should be defended and taken care of, et cetera, et cetera. And Remus lost, Romulus won, and that's why Rome is called uh, Roma rather than Rima, or named after Remus, because he was no longer there. Um, so as I said, they'd been longtime residents of this area. Um, linguistic evidence suggests that, and archeological evidence suggests that there were people living in this area before Rome became a big city. Um, and it seems that they were the original uh, Roman population. The small-time kingdoms banded together um, and were bent on expansion and growing. Uh, but over time, there was a bit of a problem within, within 150 years. By 509 BCE, the king had um, perhaps taken on too much power. And there was a very famous um, incident where the king's son was, well, there's various versions of this story, but ba the basic outline is um, there was a, a beautiful wife of another man, and the king's son, uh, either through guile or through force, forced himself upon her, and uh, she then went to the town magistrate, who happened to be her father, and said, hey, this guy raped me. You guys should do something about it. And while they were arguing about what to do, she killed herself, because she did not want to um, bring shame upon her family for having been defiled thus. A little uh, unfair nowadays in our 
in our understanding of who would have been at fault in that situation. Uh, but that uh, show of virtue and familial piety was one of the founding tenets of Roman morality, right? Uh, that family honor was a big, big deal. And so uh, the king was ousted, and the monarchy was squashed. And never again would a Roman emperor, who had way more power than some rinky-dink king of you know, the seven tribes banded together you know, hundreds of years earlier, had you know, minimal power compared to what the emperors had later on. Yet they never, ever called themselves a king, because a king was uh, associated with tyranny in the Roman model. Um, yeah, nobody ever took the title of king, and if you called them a king, uh, well, depending on the on the emperor, maybe you you got shortened by about I don't know nine inches, um, or some other fun way to kill you. Okay, so Rome did not uh, grow in a vacuum; they widely adopted and adapted um, their neighbors' culture, usually the dominant culture, uh, to make it their own. They completely just ripped off the Greek pantheon. Um, they took Greek gods and they changed their names from, for example, uh, Zeus, Hera, and Athena. Um, those became Jupiter, Juno, and Minerva. Uh, one of my favorite parts about that Rome uh, show on HBO is the uh, really colorful swearing, especially done by Pullo, where he you know, uses the Roman gods' names and like has some pretty salty things that I wish I could repeat, but I won't just, you know, to keep um, things family friendly here. Um, but they're pretty, uh, pretty fun and inventive. I'd like to throw them into my repertoire just for fun. Um, so yeah, borrowed a lot from the Greeks. And they also borrowed a lot from the Etruscans, which we don't, we know way more about the Greeks, right? We know about Plato and Aristotle and all these early Greek thinkers. Uh, we know about uh, Athens and tons of Greek uh, stories and things. But the Etruscans are a bit more of a mystery. Their language uh, no longer exists, even though we have some of their writing. It's basically tombstones with Greek letters so we can say what they said, but we don't understand what they said. And the Etruscans, at least judging from their funeral decorations, which is what these are, they seem to be a fun-loving group, having a lot of parties, uh, a lot of alcohol, a lot of dancing around and chilling out. Uh, but again, this is on their tombs. It's probably like what they either hoped uh, their afterlife would be like and or, you know, they're going to celebrate the good time. Like, if you were to have a, you know, an image put on your tombstone, I doubt it would be like this one, like you sitting in a classroom, right? You're, you'd probably put the one where you're out, you know, with friends or doing something exciting, right? Whatever your Facebook profile picture might be, for example, right? You're not going to use this. You're going to use something fun. Anyway, the Etruscans... Uh, we're an isolated language. We just, again, we don't know what they sound like, but we do have some words from Etruscan in English today by way of Latin and French, like arena, which is an arena. You know what that is? Uh, an element. Element uh, actually means letter in uh, Etruscan. Um, and we've adapted it for the periodic tables of elements, but you can see where a letter would take on um, the idea of an element. Um, person, from the word persona or mask. Right? A lot of people think it's Greek, but it's actually Etruscan. And the words, uh, oh, this is a fun one. This is my favorite on my phone. A stylus. Stylus is the, Greek, or the Etruscan word for writing implement. 
I think it's so cool that I have a stylus and Etruscan word on my freaking cell phone. I love it. Um, because that was where the Romans learned to write and read was actually from the Etruscans, not the Greeks. Um, so they took their alphabet from the Etruscans. So our alphabet is actually the Etruscan alphabet. The Etruscans lived in uh, Toscana or Tuscany, which is kind of Tuscan, pretty close, right? Uh, that's, that's where they lived, just north of Rome. They eventually kind of died out. One interesting difference they had that we'll see later when we talk about society is that the Etruscans were uh, way more liberal when it came to uh, gender equality and now modern you know, ideas of like 100% equal uh, didn't exist. But uh, the Etruscans let their, the Etruscan women were allowed to go to parties, whereas Greek women were not. Greek women at parties were prostitutes, musicians, or servants. Um, whereas wives were allowed to go to all the parties that the Etruscans had. Um, as you can see here, some, some dancing going on. Looks like quite the shindig, dancing around that tree. Um, and the Romans adopted uh, that Etrus Etruscan view of, um, of uh, female uh, autonomy. They had a lot more autonomy than the Greek women. Uh, Roman ideals were uh, bravery, um, traditional values and obedience to the ruling class. <laughs> it's a pretty good morality to have, right, if you're in the ruling class. So bravery, uh, traditional values, and uh, obedience to the ruling class. So basically, maintaining the social status quo was a big deal for the Romans. We'll see this come up over and over, even while we have uh, emperors and uh, upper class that is just like, Super debauched, lots of sex, huge parties where people are like eating so much food that they have to go throw up so they can eat the next course just so they can like glut themselves. Uh, that, uh, you know, like they prize things like frugality, but then they're, you know, doing, they're saying one thing and doing another. And it's very often that the emperor would put out an image of morality or try and um, support public morality when at the same time kind of uh, being a little bit of a, Skeevy perf. Um, okay, so the Republic uh, from 509 to 27 uh, BCE comes from the term uh, race publica. Publica is public, race is thing of, so the thing of the, of the public. So basically a republic, right, we have the idea of a nation ruled by uh, the people, well, that's, that's what they wanted to do here. And of course, in the early founding of the Republic, people meant, you know, like the wealthy class were the ones that were getting to rule. Um, and it was, instead of a king, they had two consuls. Consuls are uh, not quite the civic leaders. And uh, although they were supported by the religious hierarchy and there was religious connotations to it, it wasn't as illicit or as explicit as other, excuse me, kings who had been put on the throne by a, a god or something like that. And the Senate began as kind of like the president's cabinet, like a, a group of people who were there to um, give the consuls advice. But over time it grew and it became an elected body. Um, at first it was largely, well, for quite a long time, it was made up of uh, people out of the ruling class or the elite class. Over time, that was opened up to plebs, 
and we'll talk about the difference between the patricians and the plebs uh, later on, but that means uh, common folks. It was opened up to them eventually, but even then, if you were a commoner, you had to be pretty damn wealthy to become a senator. They had a rather uh, expansionist foreign policy. They would go take over their neighbors and claim it was self-defense, which, I mean, it's a, it's a good reason. Uh, an, imagined, an imagined slight uh, could uh, justify a war, sure. Um, we've certainly been, we as in the United States, has certainly been guilty of that. It's pretty clear that the Bay of Tonkin affair that got us dragged into Vietnam was uh, trumped up or otherwise uh, let happen so that it would be a cause for war. Um, there's some argument that um, the main blowing up before we invaded Cuba was um, maybe not the, the uh, work of Cubans. Uh, Hitler did the same thing in World War II uh, when the Reichstag burned down. Uh, it allowed him to clamp down on society uh, because of, or as seize control and consolidate his power, right, as self-defense. Um, so, you know, pretty, uh, pretty long uh, history of self-defense as a foreign policy when you're really just wanting to expand. They had a mafia-like expansion. Uh, their, basic, um, their basic model was to show up to these neighboring towns, neighboring polities, remember from last time, our polities are the autonomous uh, city-states in this case. They would show up knocking on the door with an army behind them and say, hey, boy, have we got a deal for you. You can either join us and we'll give you a good tax rate and you'll come into our trading sphere and we'll protect you, our army will protect you, and all you have to do is pay you know, low taxes and uh, send some of your sons to come join the army and you'll be part of the uh, growing Roman organization here, the organized crime family. And uh, people would say, oh, I don't know, I don't know, and they say, okay, I got another option for you. You say no and we come in with our army we have our way with your women, we kill all your rulers, and then we uh, enslave all your other people that survive, and then uh, we take over your land and we put our own people here, and how do you like that idea? So a lot of people said, oh, I think we'll join you. Yes? I don't know, I haven't seen it. It's possible. A lot of the, mm-hmm. Yep. Um, that is plausible. Um, I don't know specifically about what that what it's based on, but that series of events would be absolutely plausible. Uh, we'll talk about slavery when we get to society, and there absolutely were slaves, and most of them were war booty. Mm -hmm. uh, and this is and this mafia like uh, expansionist policy worked really well because a lot of people took took the choice to join them free, uh, of their own free will, <laughs> quote unquote, um, and they created a large ep economic powerhouse because being part of a, um, a large economic union uh, allows for uh, a lot more trade to happen. <laughs> this wasn't quite so, uh, this wasn't quite so easy uh, because there were other powers already in place, like the Phoenicians. Uh, the Phoenicians, I remember I said, they had their main trading port in the middle Mediterranean down at Carthage on the north coast of Africa. And you can see in this uh, graphic where 
territory of Rome and, and her allies, basically her vassals, um, started out here around Rome, expanded, 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 and then finally they expanded to the outlying um, islands. And then they got into conflict with the Phoenicians. And you may have heard of the Punic Wars, one and two. This was the war fought by the Phoenicians against the Romans. The Romans eventually won and began to really take over a lot of the Mediterranean once the Phoenicians had been beat. Um, they, in the 200s BCE, they continued to expand. Let's see, so Italian Peninsula before 264, overseas expansion. Here's the Punic Wars, so the green is all the area they took over during the Punic Wars. Here's Carthage, they took over Carthage, so they really kicked the Phoenicians out of these areas, Greece, right? And at the time, um, if you think about um, Alexander the Great, who during the 300s had really expanded and pushed all the way over into Asia, taking over Persia, taking over Egypt, he had created this large Greece uh, or Greek-centered um, uh, Greek-centric empire, basically. Uh, but by this time, it had started to disintegrate. And who comes behind this disintegrating empire? but the Romans uh, taking over more and more of what had been, um, what had been uh, part of um, Alexander the Great's empire. Uh, and this yellow, we're not to the yellow yet. This is the maximum extent of uh, the, the empire, which doesn't happen for a little while yet. <laughs> I have a friend growing up in, or in college, and he was Greek, and his family was from Sparta. And uh, he'd always talk about how you know, Alexander the Great this and Alexander the Great that. And then <laughs> apparently Alexander the Great hated Sparta. So I got to tell my friend, like when he started to bring up uh, Alexander the Great, I'd say, but didn't he hate Sparta? Isn't your family from Sparta? Well, but um, it was, yay, we were kind of nerds um, in college. Uh, anyway, uh, near the end of the Republic, um, right before it turns into an empire, we had uh, some internal strife, largely due to, uh, one could argue, because the society became more stratified, and you start seeing more rebellion of the, ple the plebs, the plebeians, the, the commoners. Uh, they made up the army. They were a major tax base, right? So when they would go on strike or refuse to pay taxes, this would be a major problem for the stability of the empire. Um, but we also had top-level elite um, problems. Uh, and the rulers began, the consuls began to take more of an iron fist approach to ruling uh, Rome. Uh, they quashed these uprisings of the middle and lower classes by saying, you need to stick to Roman ideals, remember supporting the state and keeping the status quo going. And so they would you know, quash them uh, quite heavily. Uh, at the same time, we had um, a series of really famous turnovers of who was in charge. Um, so this is a picture of Pompey, uh, who, or a, a picture of a bust of Pompey, who was a major Roman uh, admiral and general. He became famous for banishing pirates out of the Mediterranean. Um, it was very popular, uh, but he, ran into trouble with uh, Julius Caesar, shown here in uh, uh, another bust. 
Caesar had conquered Gaul, which is modern-day France. And this is where uh, the story in, Rome, in HBO's Rome picks up, is actually with the conflict between Pompey and, and Caesar. They had been friends, but they became enemies uh, and engaged in uh, civil war, basically. And it was a civil war between uh, their armies. They each commanded an army, and the armies went to civil war. It doesn't seem to have been as much of a civil war where it's like uh, quite like the, the North and South in the U.S. Civil War. Um, Pompey was routed, and he was chased around the Mediterranean all the way um, through Greece, all the way down um, and into Egypt. And at the time, there was a young uh, boy king, Ptolemy, uh, in Egypt. And uh, when Pompey came, he thought, ah, this is going to be a great... Um, it's going to be a great gift I can give to Caesar because at this time Egypt was under, was a province of Rome. And uh, so the boy king had Pompey's head cut off and put in a basket and given to Caesar. And Caesar was pretty pissed off because he said, uh, that man was a Roman citizen and you killed him. Uh, you should have handed him over, whatever. He got mad, deposed Pompey, or excuse me, Ptolemy and put Cleopatra on the throne. Never mind the fact that Cleopatra uh, and he were lovers and had a kid. Uh, it was completely uh, not related to that at all. Um, we all know that Caesar then was eventually, uh, after consolidating Egyptian rule under Cleopatra, he was assassinated in 44 BCE. Uh, there was a play by Bill Shakespeare about it. Um, he had been a dictator. He'd become dictator two years earlier. Dictator at that time didn't have the connotation that, well, I mean, it gained that connotation because of people like Caesar and those who followed him, but dictate, right, dictate. It's from the term, same term as dictate, right? It's one who speaks, and that becomes the law or the rules, right? So it's just, dictator is actually a, technically, it's kind of a neutral term for one who is ruling by by his or her, you know, what he or she says go. They're an absolute ruler. And other uh, monarchs or others have had dictatorial powers, but uh, this is the first time where someone's actually called a dictator. Oh, actually, we get the word fascist also from ancient Rome. So the symbol of power in ancient Rome was a bundle of sticks. These sticks were called the fasci. And whoever wielded them uh, was, you know, the ruler. And it was uh, sticks representing the different colonies or the different, um, the different cities or whatever that were part of the. Uh, but by binding them together, you then held the fascists, and you became, you were the ruler, uh, or the ruler did this. This didn't make you the ruler. This was something the ruler did. But fascist comes from from that as well. So all kinds of fun things. Kaiser in World War Two. Oh yeah, absolutely. And if you look at in the, uh, it's eerie how similar like a lot of the Nazi, um, the big public displays of, uh, uh, of of the Third Reich was supposed to be. This was supposed to be Rome. Like they had the eagles, they had um, the swastika. Like these things had been revived from Rome. They wanted to be the next Rome, explicitly. Um, okay, so. He was assassinated, and his number two, uh, Mark Antony, yeah, 
uh, and his uh, wanted to take over, Mark Antony. Uh, but Mark Antony lost to Octavian, who had been, he was the nephew or something of, of Caesar. He was made his heir because Caesar didn't have an heir. Um, and so he became the Emperor Augustus, uh, the first real emperor of, um, of Rome. And he expanded uh, quite a lot. Um, and until one, uh, what, what was it, 117 of the Common Era uh, was the maximum extent of Rome, as you can see here, the outer boundaries of where uh, Rome established its maximum, that was its maximum extent. And underneath this area, uh, we understand uh, the Pax Romana took over, which is uh, Pax is a peace. So this means the Roman peace. Basically, within this area, it's kind of like NAFTA or some other free trade organization where the borders are all protected, internal strife and thievery is suppressed. There are uniform road systems, like they made uniform monetary systems, uniform trade systems, and people, there were you know, judges and courts and infrastructure across this entire area supported by the state, and then you could trade throughout this entire area very easily, uh, both by water in the right season or by road, which were built by the Romans again. Um, and the neat thing was, because they suppressed uh, highway robbery, which had been like a thing, highway, right, refers to a road that's up above the grade so that it's dry, right? Um, and so there used to be robbers Throughout, and later during the Middle Ages, there were robbers again who plied these roads to thieve, right? If you've ever seen or read uh, Robin Hood, that's what they were, basically, highway robbers. Um, so the Roman army would suppress these people, and so it was very easy and safe to transit these roads. Um, and the neat thing is, this is the first time we get, like, tourism. If you were rich, of course, people from Rome would have villas or vacation homes out along the coast, and they would go there when it got too hot in Rome in the summer. We'll go to our summer. Mm, our villa, whatever, right? Rich, snobby people, whatever. Okay, but they were able to do it because it became so safe. Not to, not to say that there wasn't, you know, some problems, but for the most part, it was really safe. So the empire rolls on, uh, 27 BCE to 476 CE. Um, Octavian uh, uh, set out to stabilize and modernize the empire. Uh, he made, uh, I don't remember if he was the one who came up with post or the mail, but uh, it was in Rome that we get the idea of post, like mail. Uh, it's called posts because you would have posts along a route. Here's a post, there's a post, here's a post, there's a post. And then you would have riders on horses. And they would go back and forth between these posts carrying mailbags. And that's how the mail would get around. Um, and so it's called the postal system because it was based on posts within the, within the Roman uh, area. Neato. Okay, they weren't the first to do that. Aztecs and Incas and others had similar runners systems, but uh, we get our word from that. Anyway, um, so, Octavian called himself the first citizen, remember, not a king, even though he was extremely powerful and could basically have anyone killed or whatever, um, and, and ruled by 
decree and dictation, um, they did have about two centuries of peace after um, Octavian through about 200 uh, CE or a little before that. And then there, during that time, there were a few problems uh, like Caligula, which even if you don't know who Caligula is specifically, you've probably heard the name as kind of an example of uh, a debauched ruler. Um, supposedly he was a nymphomaniac uh, who spent down the state treasury building himself a really lavish palace or two. He was the one who threatened to make his horse a senator, have his horse appointed to the Senate as a kind of a joke to say you guys are useless. Uh, uh, but these stories are recorded later by historians, and a lot of times people will say kind of nasty things about, he, he wasn't a great ruler right at this time, and that's 100% that's clear. But whether or not he actually did all these things, it's hard to say exactly, but it's thought, or it's recorded by later people who are often against him uh, that he did all these nasty things. Similarly, Nero uh, was a tyrannical uh, ruler by reputation, um, and he supposedly burned down Rome so he could build himself a really nice palace in the middle of it. If you've ever heard the term fiddling while Rome burned, uh, it comes from Nero. He was supposedly playing a fiddle uh, while Rome burned. Now, number one, there were no fiddles at that time. It didn't exist. Uh, but he was a fan of like this lyre-type, harp-type thing that he did play. Um, but at the time that Rome burned down, he actually wasn't even in Rome. Uh, so he couldn't have been singing, uh, singing or playing a harp while Rome burned down. He was on his way to Rome. Uh, and once he got there, he helped um, the re repair efforts and to help, he opened up his palaces to displaced Romans who had lost their homes. So even though he was a tyrant and supposedly uh, was happy about Rome burning down, because he did build his palace on where it did burn down, it's uh, probably lost to history to know if he actually ordered it to be burned down or not. <laughs> Reminds me, like when I lived in New Orleans, uh, people argued that the uh, the Ninth Ward, which was the place that was hit hardest by the flooding because the uh, the dikes were uh, dikes broke, uh, people actually argued that uh, they blew the dikes to uh, flood the poor part of town to save the French Quarter and other uh, wealthier parts of town. And I wouldn't believe them except that there is documentation that it was done at, during previous hurricanes. Um, and there were, it's funny that the dikes failed there again. So here's supposedly Nero playing his little uh, lyre thing. Okay. The last two centuries of Rome um, had more internal strife. Remember, the Roman warm period is ending, uh, so we're getting a bit of environmental pressure um, that might have disrupted some of what was going on. Um, and we have a couple of standout emperors during this time. Uh, Diocletian, which I won't ask you too much about him, but Diocletian uh, worked to stabilize and actually did, uh, through pretty draconian measures, to stabilize the decline. He set prices and enforced, um, basically had a much more structured economy, and that smoothed things out for a little while. Uh, Constantine is the namesake of Constantinople, which is now Istanbul. Constantine uh, moved the, emperor, empire, uh, the seat of the empire from Rome 
to what was then called Byzantium, or uh, Constantinople, now Istanbul, uh, and that's why it was named after him. He also, on his uh, deathbed, apparently saw a cross in the sky uh, and converted to Christianity and decreed that they convert uh, the empire basically to a Christian empire. Uh, the, up until this time, the Christians had been a persecuted minority, and so he is uh, pretty important in the uh, history of, of Christianity. He, if you've ever heard of the, the Nicene Creed, he's actually the one who said, hey, uh, we should have a we should formalize Christianity, and he held the Council of Nicaea, and that's where they formalized a lot of these different things. Um, that's, it was under him. So he changed the religious character of the empire and Europe, really, and a lot of, because of what happened in, with you know, uh, Europe rising to dominate much of the world during the 1900s, really changed the face of the world religiously. Imagine if he hadn't, uh, we could still have a uh, pagan Greek-based belief system as the dominant religious practice in a lot of the Western world, which would have been, I don't know, it would be a fun thought experiment to think about. Thanks for listening to this low-tech lecture. Find out more by visiting our website, lowtechinstitute.wordpress.com. There you'll find the low-tech podcast, our blog, our event calendar, and other things going on around the Institute. You can subscribe to this lecture or our podcast on iTunes, Google Play, and many other podcasting apps. The background music is Rachmaninoff's Piano Concerto No. 2 in C minor and is in the public domain. This podcast is under the Creative Commons Attribution and Share Like License, meaning you're free to use and share it as long as you provide credit.